Well, um, I don't know if anyone is a, a fan of watching the, the series The Crown. Um, I've seen, I think, all the series so far. Um, and I remember watching, I think it was series two or three, a couple of years ago, and there's an episode um, uh, about the, the accident in the, the Aberfan mines. Um, and it's sort of about how the, how the royal family res responded um, to that um, 144 uh, people were, were killed in a kind of slip of slurry that came down, down the hill of a Welsh valley. Uh, and 116 of them were children. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a dreadful incident. And, and, and as you watch the episode, there was this really powerful incident with, with masses of people all stood outside, um, mourning, grieving. And... Uh, and the, the music in the background is just an unaccompanied choir um, singing a, a song, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And it goes on for about two or three minutes. And you just sit and you feel the weight of it washing, washing over you. Um, it, it's, it's a kind of masterful piece of, of filmmaking, really, to watch. And these unaccompanied voices, they convey the sense of grief uh, and, and they kind of, this bringing of a community and almost a, a nation to, to a stop over, over the situation they're in. And I think that feeling captures a, a little bit of something of what's going on in this psalm. Um, last week, if you were here, we had Psalm 42 and 43. Um, that's much more of a kind of solo song, a solo lament, if you like. Um, whereas this psalm is a, a corporate one. I wonder if, if we read through, most of the language is we, our. It, it's something that God's people are to say um, together. It's a, a corporate song to say in, in, in the real midst of, of the pit. Although, as we go through, do keep your eyes open because there is a solo singer who sort of stands out from the choir um, once in a while who we might encounter a couple of times. But Psalm 44 is a little bit different to, to what's going on in the crown. Um, most kind of psalms of lament um, or incidents like uh, the one at Abba Fan, they they find us kind of pointing the blame somewhere, looking to find out who is responsible so we can hold someone accountable uh, for what's happened. And, and in lots of psalms, you get to a point where it turns and we find out, find the people kind of confessing their sin. Um, or we, we, we work out something has, has happened that they've done that has uh, led them into uh, this place. But that's where this psalm is, is really different. I wonder, you maybe noticed as we read through, we got to verse 9, uh, and, and it feels like a real change of mood. Everything's positive, and then verse 9, but now you've rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies, and, and so on. Uh, and we look for an explanation, and we get to verse 17. All of this came upon us, that we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. God's people, they're singing a song of rejection and abandonment, but they're confident of their own innocence. And that makes it all the more painful, doesn't it, to listen? And I guess it, it highlights the big question of the psalm, is how do God's people respond when they encounter undeserved suffering? When they are in this situation and when they examine their hearts, they know that they have sought to be faithful to the Lord. I wonder what comes to mind when you think of that question. 
maybe bitterness to God, maybe that feeling of being forgotten, unloved or unvalued, maybe a sense of self-righteousness and an indignance. How can, how can this be happening? Maybe questioning God's goodness over the situation, God's power. Is he good after all? Is he in control? Maybe, maybe all of the above. Maybe a sense of uh, turning in on ourselves and, and only being able to really see everything in light of how it affects us and finding it very difficult to see how God might be at work in the situation. Well, this psalm doesn't give us uh, all of the answers, but it does give us some helpful pointers uh, and it shows us a little bit what it is like to live through such, such a, a undeserved suffering. And I guess my prayer as I've looked at it is that the Lord, by his spirit, would help us to be able to join in with this song and to sing uh, this song uh, both, both now or in the, in the days ahead uh, when we might need it. So there's three responses we're going to have uh, a look at that the psalm uh, helps us with to undeserved suffering. The first one is the psalmist tells us to remember God's past victories. Remember God's past victories in verses 1 to 8. Now, for, for a psalm that, that feels as heavy as this, it starts in quite a surprising place, doesn't it? Uh, for a psalm that, that feels like it's about defeat, it's odd to start with talk of victory. A little bit like walking kind of into the cinema, uh, you kind of picked your film and you get in there and you just think, hang on, is, is, this, is this the right film? I was looking for an action film and it's, it's a cartoon and it's animated and there's Buzz Lightyear or something like that. You feel like maybe you've walked into the wrong psalm. But he begins uh, by remembering God's past victories. We've heard it, verse 1, with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. So these people, that they weren't there to see these things for themselves, but parents, generation after generation, were teaching their children about God's mighty deeds, about his victory. And it's as if, once they've heard these stories, as if they were really there, as if they heard God's great promises to Abraham for themselves, as if they witnessed the, the terror of the plagues, the locusts, the frogs, the, the blood in the Nile. It's as if they... Breathe that sigh of relief on the Passover morning. As if they witnessed that wonder of the Red Sea rescue and they felt those dry stones under their feet. As if they saw Pharaoh's chariots being squashed by water. As if they tasted the manna and the quail which rained down for them and sustained them through the wilderness. They're called to, to remember because that is their own history and they're left in no doubt who gave them this victory we'll have a look at verse two with your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors you crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish it was not by their sword that they won the land nor did their arm bring them victory no it was your hand your arm and the light of your face for you loved them they look back on God's past victories and see God is the one in the driving seat. Remember the walls of, of Jericho? All God's people did was walk round and make a noise. He brought the victory. Verse 2, he's the one who planted the people. 
He's the one who gave them a land, who drove out the nations. And why? Well, the end of verse 3. The light of your face was on them. You loved them. They remember God's past victories. But as we get to verse 4, do you see the past begins to break into the present? And we start getting a hint of why, why it starts this way. This victorious, loving God of verse 1 to 3 is not just a God of the past, but he is God now, even in the midst of defeat and confusion. Verse 4, you are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Do you spot as well as coming from the past to the present, we get the first instance of our solo singer, that the, the person's changed. You are my king and my God. And it's as if someone stands out of the choir and wants to affirm, yes, this God, he, he is my God and my king. I want to keep believing in him. And as the psalm continues, it's like everyone else decides to, to, to join in with him. Verse 5, that they're agreeing. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. And then the solo singer again, verse 6, I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. Everyone joins in, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame until we get this final coming together in verse 8. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. Well, that feels astoundingly full of confidence, doesn't it? Especially when these people are in a place of defeat and suffering. We wonder, have we walked into the wrong psalm? I bet they didn't feel like starting the psalm this way. How much easier would it have been to start in verse 9? You've rejected us, humbled us, you no longer go out with our armies. But they don't start that way. Why does it start here? Well, I think one reason might be is that they know it is hard to see the truths of the past very clearly when there are great tears in the present. It's hard to see the truths of the past clearly through the tears of the present. Our eyes become drenched and blurry, but just because everything is blurry through our vision, it doesn't mean that those things out there are not still true and real and don't have a bearing on the present. God's people here, they feel rejected, abandoned, disgraced, but they don't trust how they feel or even necessarily how they see to be the most accurate guide. So they make an effort to look back, to remember. They sing of the Lord who's been with his people in the past, who's given victory in battle and who keeps his loving covenant promises. He did so over hundreds of years. Now they're in a different battle, aren't they? a fight for keeping the faith, to believe that their God and King is still God and King, that the God who gave victory in the past can still give victory now. But it's a battle nonetheless, and God is one who brings victory to his people. And for us too, there is real wisdom in this approach, isn't there? Remembering God's past victories when we find that the tears of the present are clouding out the truths of the past. And, but for us too, remembering doesn't just happen by accident. 
We have to be quite deliberate about it. It can be really hard to do sometimes, can't it? Or maybe, like this psalm, we need a leader, someone, someone else to, to step out and, and, and help us to remember, or other people around us to, to sing these truths to us because we're finding it hard to, to kind of go there for ourselves. But as we look back and remember God's past victories, and especially the one that we've already sung about and, and had read to us before our prayers, the Lord Jesus, his work for us, we allow those realities to sort of be a, a frame for how we view the world. I wonder what being deliberate in remembering might look like um, for you, uh, what it might look like for, for us. This is a, a kind of corporate psalm, and I guess for us, on a Sunday in particular, we do a lot of remembering, don't we? We've thought about lots of things already. We'll each come with our experiences some in real pain and suffering, some in, in great joy. But as we come together on a Sunday and we remember who God is and what he's done, also what he will do, we give him that opportunity to, to wipe away those tears from the present so we can see the truths of the past, truths of the past that have eternal significance. It doesn't make the current circumstance easy but it does help us to see. We do things like hearing God speak to us from his word. We, we remember when we have the Lord's Supper. Maybe we have a, a baptism and we remember the Lord's work in, in our lives. And, and when we were baptized, our union with Jesus, our death and resurrection with him. And we talk with each other over tea and coffee afterwards and testify to the Lord's work in, in our lives whether that is uh, things going really well or things really quite hard at the moment. But like the psalmist, the sons of Korah, who, who, are, who are the group who are singing this, we do this together. Well, that's our first, first response to undeserved suffering that we see. Remember God's past victories together. Let the past speak into the present. But that doesn't mean that we just kind of become all stoic and sort of stiff upper lip about things. No, God is big enough. We've seen that in these first eight verses. Big enough and mighty enough and sovereign enough for us to be painfully real with him. That's why we see our, our second kind of piece of advice from the psalm is to acknowledge our present Misery. So remember God's past victories. Secondly, acknowledge your present miseries. Their description is pretty crushing, isn't it? Feels like they've been abandoned. And actually, as we go through the next few verses, it seems like the opposite of where everything was before in verses 1 to 8. Instead of God fighting for them, verse 9, now you have rejected us, humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. Instead of their foes being trampled in verse 5, we see verse 10, you made us retreat before the enemy. Our adversaries have plundered us. It feels the wrong way round. And this rejection makes them feel worthless to God. Verse 12, you sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. I've been moving house in the last week, um, put a few things on, on eBay for the first time, um, 
I know, eBay, Facebook Marketplace, there's various, there's various competitors for the best, uh, best purveyor of secondhand goods. Um, the normal process is you kind of put your thing on once you've got your account sorted and kind of guess a rough price. And, and you kind of want to wait for the highest bidder, don't you? You sort of want to think, I, I, I'd like to at least make something back on this investment. But God's people here, they feel like they've been sold off cheap, like, like an unloved piece of furniture. It's, it's as if he's just said yes to the lowest bid that, that came in because he just wanted, wanted to get rid of it. Now, I don't think that's an experience that, that uh, corporately, as a church, we are going through at, at, at the moment uh, as, a, as a kind of church family, but it might be something that some of us feel as individuals. Uh, and it probably is something that many of our brothers and sisters around the world uh, might be going through. But as well as feeling abandoned uh, and sort of unloved and unvalued, there is this sense of disgrace and shame that they're carrying as well. He carries on, verse 13, you've made us a reproach to our neighbors, scorn and derision of those around us, a byword among the nations. It's as if they, they can't leave the house, go to the shops without people looking funny at them. Maybe they walk down the street and someone crosses over the road to walk to the other side. Maybe people kind of mutter names under their breaths and point to them. And it never stops, do you see? From dusk till dawn, I live in disgrace all day long. And my face is covered with shame. You see, that's our solo singer again. He, he stands out, it's as if they're singing this, and he says, yeah, I know what that feels like. Let, let, me, let me tell you about my experience. Every day, my face is covered with shame. People taunt me, revile me. This suffering is, is less of a kind of personal or private one. It's more the sort of thing that a group of people might face simply for being that group of people, for holding particular beliefs, for, for maybe wearing certain clothes, for doing things differently, for looking a certain way. They're suffering for being Israel, for, for being God's people. And whilst this rejection and this disgrace that they feel is so painful, what's even harder is that God is allowing it to happen. Do you see the emphasis in verse 9 to 13? You, 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 you have rejected. You made us retreat. You gave us up. You sold your people. You have made us a reproach. You have made us a byword. That is the real sting in the tail. It seems as if, feels as if God himself has forgotten them. These verses might feel very bold to say to God, mightn't they? But they are here in black and white. They are here in this psalm, and I think it gives us permission to be honest with the Lord and to express when we feel that way about our situation and how important it is that we do. Even this act of acknowledging our misery to God is, is one way of acknowledging that, that he is there in the picture and that we want to involve him, we want to understand what is going on. But as if this rejection and disgrace wasn't enough, we kind of assume that we get to this point in a psalm and maybe find some explanation, maybe, maybe some sin, maybe some unfaithfulness. We, we find later in Israel's history that that, it, that is what leads to them being exiled. Uh, but, but here, there is nothing. 
read this earlier, but the, the opposite is true, isn't it? Verse 17, all this came upon us that we had not forgotten you. We'd not been false to your covenant. Their hearts had not turned back. Their feet had not strayed. Now, it's not saying that they're sinless. It's not saying that they're perfect. But they have kept faithful and loyal to God. They've, they've kind of dealt with their sin in the way that, that God told them to. They've gone through the offerings and the sacrifices. They've not clung and worshipped at other gods. They seem innocent and undeserved in their suffering. Feels a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? One of my favourite films um, growing up was a film called The Fugitive. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a 1993 Harrison Ford classic um, about a man who's kind of framed for a crime that he didn't commit and he's on the run. Uh, it's, it's very gripping. Um, and, and we feel his plight. You have people getting closer and closer. And we know that he has done nothing wrong and, and, and everything, all the evidence is stacking up to say that he should be in jail for murdering uh, his wife. And we feel this sense of kind of connection with him because we know he's innocent and we want, we want it all to be kind of turned around. But it feels, it feels hopeless. He feels alone. Well, I guess maybe we feel a, 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 that's why we, we kind of love a, a, an innocent person accused of something in a, in a film, don't we? we? We are on their side and that's why we, we feel the conundrum here. The God of their fathers seems to have abandoned the children. And it feels a very lonely and silent place to be. And as I said before, I think as, as a church, um, this probably isn't our experience as a, as a group. We probably don't walk out of our door and feel reviled uh, by our neighbours for what we believe. Uh, at least not yet. And we've got a lot to be thankful for there, don't we? because many brothers and sisters around the world uh, may encounter that. And it might be something that we experience in the future. And that is why reading a psalm like this is so important. But it might be something that some of us have had a taste of in our individual lives or at work. And so there is great blessing in having these words for us here. But this psalm is also proof that we might feel abandoned and isolated and surrounded by silence, but other people have sung these words before, that we're not alone if that is how we feel. We're in the company of, of God's people from the past who, who sang this psalm at very least. And as soon as we begin to get a little bit of companionship, that, that at least gives a bit of hope, doesn't it? There's a moment in The Fugitive where, where suddenly someone you get the idea that someone believes that he is innocent and, and it's just a, it's a, a great moment of, of relief. We get this sense that people have sung this song before but it's even deeper than that because in, in the worries that we might have about misplaced faith, in the guilt that we might feel about doubts and questions as to what's going on, we discover this song, this song about why, about why this undeserved suffering it actually echoes the cry of the lord jesus himself doesn't it at the bottom of those depths of suffering that the deepest depths that suffering has ever been the son of god cried out these words my god my god why have you forsaken me the suffering in this psalm is an echo or a picture 
of the suffering of the Son of God himself. And there is great comfort in Jesus' suffering there, isn't there? Great comfort of solidarity. That when you cry out with this psalmist, when we cry out, if we get to that place as a a church in Winchester, that it feels like God has rejected us, that we would be echoing the cry of the greatest man of faith who's ever lived. That we stand with our saviour. And that that is a good place to be. There is comfort in the solidarity of Jesus, but also in his sovereignty. That experience of undeserved suffering can make us feel that everything has gone wrong and that nothing is in control. But Jesus' suffering teaches us something much more profound. That even when the walls come crashing in, when we look at Jesus on the cross, it's possible for everything to be going right. As painful and as confusing as that is. God's people here, they're clinging to the fact that though they don't deserve what they are going through, it is for the Lord's sake. Do you see in verse 2, yet for your sake we face death all day long. Even though God's purpose seems hidden, they acknowledge that there is something going on. Well, Jesus could sing those words as well, couldn't he? With deeper and truer conviction than any of us. And as we come to the cross, we see that Jesus shows us how the Lord can have hidden purposes of of glory in the midst of suffering deeper than we can ever imagine. If you think about it, it is only because he was a sheep ready to be slaughtered, only because his suffering was undeserved, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, could take away the sins of the world and pay the price for our sin. We sang these words earlier. See him there upon the hill. Hear the scorn and laughter. Silent as a lamb he waits, praying to the Father. See the king who made the sun and moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down. Why? So that he could save them. The cross shows us undeserved suffering being woven into God's plan. Not wasted but redeemed. At the cross, we see misery and tragedy can be turned into victory and redemption. And the hard truth is that what is true of our Savior was also true of his people. Paul picks up uh, one of these verses from the psalm in in Romans 8, which we'll read a little bit later, but just, just before there, he says this in Romans 8, verse 17. If we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There's a sense of when you are brought into the master's family, we are to be prepared to go the master's way. And that is the way of the cross. We are adopted and we know the great privilege of, of glory, yes, for eternity, but suffering first for a time. The hymn writer, William Cooper, um, summed it up in, in these words. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. 
and he will make it plain. We were told to remember God's past victories, but to acknowledge our present miseries, to remember Jesus' solidarity and sovereignty in the deepest of pits. And then we get to the end of the psalm, which is a prayer for help, a prayer for heavenly help, and an assurance of heavenly assistance, that the whole psalm could be kind of summed up a bit like this. Lord, you helped us in the past. Lord, we need your help now, but it feels like you're not helping us. Indeed, it seems like you've abandoned us, even though we feel we've been faithful to you. So Lord, help us, please. Don't, don't reject us. Keep being with us. Help us. They cry in verse 23, Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Bring an end to this season of night. Make yourself known. Raise us up from disgrace to, to glory. I wonder what is it that could give them confidence to, to pray this in, in this kind of horrendous place that they're in. Well, I think it's the last two words of the psalm. Rise up and help us, verse 26. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. He is a God of covenant-keeping love. That is what those words are about, his steadfast love that he has set upon his people and we saw that back in verse 3 as they look back to the past they see the God who chose them and set his love upon them and that that covenant love gives them hope for the future with the Lord we're told in scripture a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years that's why seasons like this are so confusing and so hard for us the story of Jesus ends with resurrection and glory, even though it didn't bypass the suffering. And so our story will end with bodily resurrection and glory, but it won't bypass the suffering too. But, but like a couple who find assurance and confidence in their marriage by looking at their wedding rings, remembering those promises they made to each other, God's people have confidence that however distant things are, their covenant with God is sure. They can pray, rise up, help us, because of your unfailing love. They know that God's covenant will not prove false with them, however dark the days will be. And that's why Paul picks up this psalm uh, when he says some of the most amazing verses about the love of God that, that, that many of us will treasure uh, in this room. So let me read this to you from the end of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All these kind of things that we've just seen. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the words of the psalm. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Like Jesus, these things won't lead to ultimate defeat, but victory. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus 
undeserved suffering, his covenant love makes sense of this psalm. And I wonder as we come to a close, as we think back over it, if some of those phrases where that leader stands out from the chorus, maybe give us a picture of Jesus himself standing out, affirming his faith and inviting us to sing along with him. As we remember God's past victories, Jesus stands in front of us and points us to his victory over life, over death, sorry, his, his victory of glory over suffering. As we acknowledge our present miseries, we, we have Jesus standing in front of us and helping us to not be surprised when we face rejection or defeat like he did. Helping us to keep going in the misery of shame when we might be mocked like he was. He comforts us, uh, one writer puts it, that, that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. That is what we see in Jesus. And as we pray for heavenly help, Jesus stands in front of us and assures us that however abandoned we may feel, there is nothing which can get in the way of his love. He will not neglect or forsake the bride for which he gave his life. He won't forget that wedding ring that is on his finger. So let's spend a moment now to reflect on those things, shall we? And then we'll come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have thought of deep things this morning. Lord, we thank you that psalms like this are in your words. And Lord, we pray for us as a church, Lord, that if we are to encounter seasons where we feel abandoned by you, that you would help us to cling to these truths, help us to remember the victories of the past, that to, to, to look through the tears of the present and to cling to those truths, even though things may feel so confusing. Help us to be honest with you in prayer and acknowledge our misery. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who went through rejection and misery and shame for us. And Lord, help us to pray for help, knowing that you have promised to stay faithful to us, that nothing we go through can separate us from your great love. We sang these words at the beginning, all our sickness, all our sorrows, Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. He's walking with us still, turning tragedy to triumph, turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle. So take heart and stand amazed. Father, we pray that you would help us to keep clinging on in the battle, that we would take heart, that we would even have the faith, have the courage to stand amazed. And we thank you that Jesus is walking with us still and will walk with us all the way to glory. In his name, amen.